Well, good morning, Northeast. It's wonderful to be able to share the message with you again this morning. And it has been an interesting week, hasn't it? With Freedom Day last Monday, and of course then some crazy weather during the week. But I hope that you're glad to be able to sit for an hour or so and join with the online community as we focus on the Lord. Last week, Pam began a new series. And if you haven't heard her message, can I encourage you to do that? Not right now. But go back and listen to her message because it gives context to the whole series that we've just started. And that series is focused on the book by Louis Giglio, which is called Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. And that book is based on the 23rd Psalm in verse 5 that says, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And I love that idea of just a table for two people, just me and the Lord or you and the Lord just having a conversation and having time together. The danger is that the enemy, uninvited, will pull up a chair and interrupt that. And the whole series is about how that can happen and what we can do to avoid the enemy joining our table. I've shared this story before, and I hope you don't mind if I share it again. But a few years ago, Jane and I had the wonderful experience of going on a river cruise in Europe. And one evening, it was our turn to share a meal at the captain's table. There was about eight other people there on a rectangular table. And sitting across from me was a lady who, well, there's no other way to say it. She was not skilled in the art of conversation. The kind of person who would talk at you or talk to you rather than with you. Maybe you know someone like that, someone who isn't aware that they are taking the whole conversation. They don't have the skill of asking a few simple questions and then handing the conversation to someone else for them to be drawn in and to share and to be heard as well. And during the evening, Jane and I heard all about this lady's life. We heard about where she lives, what she did before she retired. We heard about her adult sons, what jobs they do, how much money they earned. We heard about her dog that's walked every morning at 7 o'clock and every afternoon at 2 o'clock and how it barks at the postman so she always knows when the postie is there. We heard about her husband who has health problems and used to play guitar at pubs but now he can't do that. Mind you, he was sitting right next to her the whole time and could have said that himself but wasn't given a chance. And it was a bit exhausting but it's for one evening and I guess that's what she needed to do. But what really bothered me was that she was sitting next to the captain. And while she was focusing on myself and Jane, she was effectively turning her back on the captain and shut him out of the conversation. And I so desperately wanted to talk to the captain, asking what life was like captaining a riverboat through the rivers of Europe. Had he always done that? Had he sailed in different parts of the world? Um, did he ever have any close calls or near misses? But I could not talk to him because this lady was demanding our attention. Isn't that what the enemy does when he's seated at our table? He will turn his back to the Lord and try and steal our attention. And when our focus is stolen, rather than feasting on all that God has prepared for us, we dine on a diet of lies and deception. The enemy's aim is stealing us away from the Lord to weaken and destroy our faith to disable our effectiveness as followers of Jesus and as witnesses of his love, to pull us out of the battle and ultimately to be separated from God 
for eternity. Don't give the enemy a seat at your table. When two opposing sport teams are preparing to, comp uh, to compete against each other, often they'll study the tactics of the opposite team and they'll learn what are their strengths and what are their weaknesses and how they're likely to play the game. I want to take a few minutes now to just think about the character of our enemy. Now, of course, this isn't a Saturday afternoon's game of sport. This is a game of life and death for eternity. The devil's first mentioned in Genesis 3 when he comes in the form of a serpent. And we read from chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Well, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we're not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. That's the first recorded event in the Bible where the enemy was an uninvited guest at the table. And the first words he spoke were designed to sow a seed of doubt. Hmm, did God really say... And the second thing he said was an outright lie. You won't die. But that lie not only brought death to the woman and the man, but to the entire human race. We read in Romans that the wages of sin is death. But praise God, that's not the end of the story, because that verse continues. For the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But listen to how Jesus describes Satan from John chapter 8. He, that Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he is consistent with his character, for he is a liar. He is the father of lies. This is the enemy we want to keep away from our table. The enemy who is a murderer, who will only tell lies and try and steal us from the Lord. But he's subtle. He starts with lies and a few doubts that are very believable, but they hide a sinister intent. There are two lies I want to focus on particularly today. That is the lie of comparison and the lie of worthlessness. If the enemy's voice was vicious, right from the start we would recognise that and we'd run a mile but it's shrewd and convincing. It's designed to make us feel dissatisfied with the table that God has prepared for us. There must be something better out there. And we begin to doubt and to compare. My life could be better if my friends were more encouraging. I need to get better friends. If only I had travelled more, life would be more fulfilling. I wish my parents had raised me to be more confident. It's all their fault. Life would have been better if I'd gone to a different school or if I had a different job or if I'd invested my money. Life would be better if my husband or wife was more understanding 
and if I lived in a different place, or if I was as popular as so-and-so. Life would be better if I could be more socially self-assured, just like that person. Or, and here's the big one, life would be better if I could find something that's better and more fulfilling than God. Do you ever struggle with comparisons? I have to admit I do. Where I work, I'm with highly skilled and capable people who just seem to think of the right answer and be able to strategize around problems. And at times I have to admit I feel inadequate. But that's a lie because I trust where God has placed me and wants me to be who he's made me to be. You see, the thing with the lie of comparison is that you never win. There is always someone better. There is always something better. And you'll always be discontent. And this means that you'll fail to live the life that God has for you. If you're discontent with who you are, you can never fulfill the purpose that God has for you. In his book, Louis Giglio says that we've come to accept the enemy sitting at our table as normal. And that's a big problem. We give him permission anytime we say things like, Oh, that's just the way it is these days. I can't do anything about it. We think we deserve more, so we allow envy and greed in comparison to cannibalize our God-given identity. I can't emphasize this enough. Don't waste time comparing your life to something else and wishing it away. Use what God has given you for his purpose, whatever that purpose might be. Allowing the enemy to have a say in our life should not be normal. We have to take this seat away from the table so we can focus our attention back on the captain. But hear the words of Jesus. In John 8, he says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If the enemy feeds you the lie of comparison, try this. Think of the most amazing artwork you've ever seen. Maybe something created by one of the masters, Rembrandt, Van Gogh, Monet, Michelangelo. And then read this verse from Ephesians. We are God's masterpiece. Have you ever considered yourself as a masterpiece? Something far better than any artist could create. Something that God has intentionally and lovingly crafted. Something that has a purpose that has incredible worth. We have to hold on to that truth. Consider this. You're racing around at the end of a very busy day preparing dinner and you drop a glass and it smashes on the floor and breaks. You can say, I'm so stupid. I can never get anything right. I'm hopeless. Which are all lies. Lies of the enemy. Or you can say to yourself, you know what? I've had a really hard day and I've done my very best. It's only a glass and it's okay. I can clean up and continue to prepare dinner. I'm not going to let this spoil my day and it's no reflection on who I am. God still loves me even if the glass slipped from my hand. I am still his masterpiece. God's truth means that you can be kind and forgiving towards yourself rather than condemning yourself, which is from the enemy. You are God's masterpiece. If your focus is not on God and you taste the enemy's doubts and lies, before too long, 
your struggles and fears and failures and frustrations and disappointments fill your mind and direct your thoughts and actions. And the more you give them time and energy, the more you let them shape your life. You see, as well as the lie of comparison that causes you to be discontent with life, the enemy dishes up a lie of worthlessness, that there's really nothing much you can do for God. And it's easy to lose perspective, and each minor difficulty or disappointment goes into this vast body of evidence that only proves that you are no good. But let's read the rest of that verse from Ephesians. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You are not worthless. There are good things that God has planned for you to do. If you're still unsure, you're in good company. Think about this worthless character from the Bible. He was a murderer, a fugitive, an unskilled labourer. He was reluctant and a poor speaker, totally worthless character. Who was he? Well, he was Moses, who stood before the most powerful man in ancient Egypt and demanded the release of the slaves. Moses then led the nation of Israel to the promised land. What a mighty man of worth to God. Well, what about this worthless person? She was a prostitute. Her name was Rahab. She saved the life of two Israelite spies. And she's known for having faith in God. What a mighty woman of worth. This person really was worthless. He was a member of the most he was a member of the least important tribe of Israel, and his family were the least important family in that tribe. And he was the least important member of that family. Totally worthless. Who was he? Well, he was Gideon, who led a band of just 300 men to defeat an entire Midianite army. What a man of great worth to God. Well, this person, so worthless that her name is not even recorded in the Bible. We know that she was viewed as a culturally inferior person and had multiple failed relationships. She could be forgiven for thinking she was worthless. We know her as the woman at the well. And this is where Jesus met her, and her life was changed. She was so excited, she brought others to Jesus, and they believed as well. What a lady of great worth. You might listen to those stories and say to yourself, well, I'm never going to lead a nation out of captivity, or I'm not going to group a band of people together and, and fight an army. Um, I can't save spies, and I don't even have confidence to talk about Jesus. Maybe you're right. But regardless, your life is still worthwhile to God. Like Moses, Rahab, Gideon, or the woman at the well, or any Bible character, you don't know what God wants to do with you. This week I was in a Zoom meeting, one of many at this stage of uh, of what's happening in society. And I was meeting with a man who shared his life story. He had a horrendous childhood and teenage years and was terribly abused. And when he was at his lowest point, he admitted that he felt so worthless that he would eat his own excrement and smear it over his body because he felt that was what he was worth. 
That's an awful story. But he came to know Jesus in his early 20s, and that made all the difference. He said that he went from having a victim mentality of life to having a victor in life, whose name is Jesus. And he now spends his entire life encouraging others to meet Jesus too. What a man of great worth. Louis Giglio says, the good, the, sorry, the not good enough anthem was composed in the pit of hell. I'll read that again. The not good enough anthem was composed in the pit of hell. It's crippling, debilitating, paralyzing, suffocating, and it didn't come from the good shepherd. No matter who you are, what you have done, or what you are doing now, you are worthwhile and you deserve a seat at the table. The Holy One invited you to be there. He booked the table. He even prepared the meal. He sat you down to join you. And as you sit down with him, you notice the kindness in his eyes and you're just enveloped in the incredible love that he has for you. As he pours you a glass of life-giving water, you notice the nail scars in his hands and you realise that this table reservation cost him everything, but you are worth it. You know, there was a lot of fuss about Freedom Day, being able to go to retail shops again, getting a haircut, having meals at a cafe or a restaurant, restaurant, and spending time with family. But as we read earlier, true freedom is knowing the truth, the truth about Jesus, the truth about ourselves. It's about sitting at the table with the Lord and focusing on him and him only. It's about recognising the lies of the enemy and turning our backs on him. It's about keeping ourselves from making comparisons and knowing, really knowing, that we are worthwhile. Here's a practical tip for you. When Jesus was tempted by Satan's deceptions and lies, he literally pulled the chair from under him by speaking the truth found in the word of God. And we can do the same. When you find yourself being tempted to snack on the lies of the enemies, take time to write down what that lie is. And then search through the Bible, the inspired word of God, and find the truth of that matter and write it in large, bold letters above that lie. For example, the lie is that my situation is hopeless and there's no way out. Why even try? Psalm 77 verse 19 tells us the truth. Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway that no one knew was there. The word of God is such a powerful tool to fight the enemy. Back on the riverboat at the captain's table, when the evening was over, that lady wouldn't have known the first thing about Jane or myself. She didn't know where we lived, what we did, where we'd travelled, whether we had children and what the children did. She possibly didn't even know our names. But when we sit at the table of the Lord, we're seated with someone who knows us intimately. He knows what brings us joy. He knows our hopes, our dreams, our fears and failures and struggles, our innermost thoughts, our strengths and our weaknesses. And he loves us just the same. 
I'll finish with a feast of God's truth. And as I read out these Bible verses, close your eyes and imagine that you were seated at the table of the Lord. Just the two of you. No interruptions. No uninvited guests. Just you and God. Feast on this truth now. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God created us in his own image. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. And finally, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Loving Father, I pray that we will feast only on the truth of your word, and that you will help us as we turn our back on the lies of the enemy. Amen.